Welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Ricky Wilchens uh, with her new book, Transgressive, How Transgender Activists Took on Gay Rights, Feminism, the Media, and Congress, and won. Uh, Ricky, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, same here. And I just thought we would start out with a little bit of background knowledge, a little bit of introduction to who you are and what kind of led you to write this book. Well, you know, it's it's my um, I guess my fourth book. Wow. Um, and I, I, you know, I kind of study stumbled into gender studies looking for um, um, a, a paradigm that would work. I mean, when I went through my transition, everything as a transgender person, they basically said, you know, you're, you're effective and successful to the degree that you can look and pass and be accepted as a cisgender woman. And that just never really sat well or worked for me. So I kind of went looking for other paradigms and um, stumbled across Judith Butler and postmodernism and deconstruction and that kind of, you know, eight the last, <laughs> the next 10 years of my life. So, um, I wrote um, um, three books around that, and then it occurred to me that I had never um, written a book on the activism side of my life. I mean, Read My Lips, Gender Queer, and uh, Queer Theory, Gender Theory, and Instant Primer were all about um, theory and kind of my life and trying to understand gender regimes, but I'd done an awful lot of activism and was fortunate enough to be there kind of for the founding of transgender political activism and had just never written it. So uh, it occurred to me we were kind of, you know, in danger of losing that history. And so I thought, well, this would be a good time to kind of write it all down. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, well, this is going to be the first of many books about those uh, early years. And then I realized this is going to be the first and only book <laughs> about those years because everybody that I went back and talked to who was around back then was not writing anything. So I thought, wow, I've <laughs> I better take this more seriously. So it turned into a really uh, interesting endeavor. And uh, one of the things that I liked most about it was um, in every chapter, I took something we did in like 1995, for instance, and came back 20 years ago and documented what happened from those early steps and how from, from little acorns, you know, huge oaks bloom 20 years later that you would have never expected. Yeah. And your book goes pretty chronologically kind of uh, tracking this movement. So I did want to start out, and coincidentally enough, uh, in my home state, but do you want to tell the listeners sort of what happened in Michigan, you know, in that in that first chapter? Well, the Michigan Women's Music Festival was the country's preeminent uh, lesbian feminist gathering. Uh, at one point, it was um, between seven and 8,000 people that would get together in, in just the middle of nowhere, Michigan, uh, on a private farm. And um, um, people would come from all over the country um, to be part of that. It was women only. And for years, I had uh, heard about it and thought about going and, and, you know, told myself I didn't really want to go and it was too inconvenient, blah, blah, blah. But basically, I was just afraid. And um, one year, uh, a woman named Nancy Jean Burkhalter, who had been attending, was in a workshop and outed herself as a transgender woman. And that night, um, festival security basically um, surrounded her and accused her of you know, not being really a woman and uh, without even letting her tell her friends what had happened to her or where she was, basically dumped her on a country road miles from anywhere. This is before cell phones uh, in the middle of the night. And um, that for me was, that was pivotal. That was something that I could not walk away from. And I had been avoiding uh, activism for years. I had a comfortable, more than comfortable job doing computer consulting on Wall Street. And I didn't want to get involved. And I kept getting requests and saying, I'm just, I'm not political, blah, blah. And when, when Nancy got kicked out, I got invited to, be part of a educational event outside the festival the next summer. And I just realized I had to be there. And so that was kind of 
that was for me to start that and, and the murder of Brandon Tina were kind of the two things that really radicalized me. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to talk about, so what happened once you then finally get to the festival? Well, the first year there were uh, four or five friends of Nancy's who decided to try to educate people and just basically camped out across from the main gate. You have to remember that literally on a dirt road, miles and miles from, uh, um, from anything that looked like a, you know, a regular, you know, macadam road and miles, miles more from anything that looked like a town or a village. So you really are in the lower, but they decided to show up and hand out flyers and hold some workshops. And my first book, read my lips had just come out and they asked me to come and do a workshop. So I did and to much trepidation. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. You, you, you squat a lot, you squat a lot of mosquitoes. It's very hot. You're living in tents. You're, you know, doing your business out in the woods. It's, you know, it's not fun, but hundreds of women came out to talk to us. And I remember sitting there in the grass one day and thinking, oh, my God, these people don't know what they have. This could scale. And so um, the next year we decided to call it Camp Trans and um, we declared it um, uh, a counter event to the festival and got all these people uh, involved in, uh, in publicizing it. And in some cases, speaking there, the Lesbian Avengers, Leslie Feinberg, who was immensely popular, Stonebush Blues had just come out, uh, and so forth. And uh, Cam Trans just blew up and um, just became this huge thing. Um, and next year, we had like four or five days of workshops, and uh, I would guess almost a 1,000 women came out at some point to talk with us. We had over 30 people in Camp Trans as permanent residents, and it just kind of took off. And it became the fulcrum uh, of this debate uh, over trans inclusion. And, and I think still the, was still the most visible symbol uh, of our being excluded uh, from cisgender spaces. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the points uh, that you're, you make early on in your book is that, you know, part of what uh, sort of the resistance that you ran into for that trans inclusion came from the idea that transgender people kind of upended sort of the gender binary, right, at its core. And you write pretty early on in the book, um, and this is uh, from, I think, your first chapter, a man changing into a woman may finally be getting some respect, but a man wearing a dress is still considered frivolous and pathetic. We have accomplished so much, yet for them so little. It remains the impossible identity. And I thought that was a really interesting passage. And what do you think that you, you're sort of interacting with when it comes to masculinity and femininity and those sort of ideas? Well, I think what I was trying to mine there was the kind of the, the, the unspoken population that probably forms the bulk of the transgender uh, Americans, which is cross-dressers. I mean, men who enjoy dressing uh, in uh, feminine attire, um, either because um, it expresses a part of themselves or it has an erotic appeal or both or something that um, we don't discuss much. We say there's a transgender movement, but basically to, it's mostly a transsexual movement and most of its concerns reflect the needs and uh, political goals of transsexuals. Um, but, you know, cross-dressers, I think, probably far outnumber the, the, however many transsexuals are in the country, but we don't really talk about um, we don't really talk about them at all, and we do very little around their political needs, and part of that is because they are so profoundly and deeply closeted. Um, men in dresses are still considered to be kind of a joke, and um, I mean, I, I hope that will change, but it is still the impossible identity. And, you know, going back to the festival, uh, and sort of the movements that follow after that sort of initial push, what were the reactions you were getting from, you know, the various communities that you were trying to interact with? Well, you know, it depended on where you were and when. Uh, I mean, this was a, a huge discussion going on in New York City 
uh, and in Greenwich Village, where I was still living, um, there were other parts of the country where this discussion hadn't even happened yet. And political change and like new ideas happen in, in, in waves and in, you know, concentric circles. Um, I remember going to uh, a women's uh, incest and abuse survivor group at the Gay Community Center in Greenwich Village, which is just a couple blocks from my house. And uh, a couple of women in that group tried to get me thrown out. And I was just horrified and shocked. I mean, you know, I'd come there to, you know, talk about things that were very important and painful. And here, I mean, women trying to throw me out right from the get-go. And that was not entirely unusual. Um, I remember going to a lesbian Avengers meeting around the same time, and it wasn't even an issue. Um, they were very radical in their politics. And actually, the lesbian Avengers were... And part of the reason that we eventually, some of us at least, got into the Michigan Women's Music Festival was through their support. But, you know, it depended on who you were talking to and where they were in their awareness. But there is this just deep strain of transphobia that has um, um, been unfortunately part and parcel of um, lesbian feminist politics going back years. Hopefully it's finally, at least with my generation, going to sunset. I, I need to say just parenthetically um, it's not in the book, but in transgressive, but, um, your readers might enjoy, you might enjoy that, you know, it was Michigan that first introduced me to, um, queer theory and, uh, and, and gender studies. I remember talking about trying to find my way out of these binary identities and, and the idea that everything was, was anchored by, you know, cisgender, uh, um, uh, cisgender aesthetics and, um, a woman at Camp Trans who had walked out for one of my workshops said, well, you know, you should, you should read this Judith Butler person, read Gender Trouble. And I, I said, you know, I, I've heard of it, but I just, I don't really get it. And she said, well, you know, buy the book. So, you know, I bought the book and, um, and, and literally in frustration, literally threw it against the wall in frustration because <laughs> I was so mad and threw it out. I had no idea what she was talking about. And that pomo babble, which is, they call it, which is completely inscrutable. And then uh, I bought it a second time uh, and had the same experience, just could not understand what she was talking about uh, and um, was desperate for some kind of you know, intellectual tools to rethink my situation. I'm writing her and saying, you know, what the hell is she talking about? And she said, I know, I know. And she said, let me send you my Anthro 201 notes. So she literally sent me her Anthro 201 notes, which explained Butler and uh, gender theory in, in everyday English. And this huge light bulb went on over my head. And uh, then I couldn't get enough. It became like a disease. And for, for years, I would haunt the stacks at the local Barnes and Noble looking for the newest book on postmodernism or deconstruction or queer theory, because it was just this unbelievable, uh, unbelievably fertile uh, set of tools for picking apart exactly the kind of rigid uh, gender regimes, which are making my life miserable. So all that came from running into the right person at, at Michigan. Who knew? Right. And it's a, a relief, honestly, to know that I'm not the only one that it took, you know, the third or fourth read through of Judith Butler to really understand it. Um, and I, I thought yeah, it, was, it was pretty, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was interesting though, that you make the point that, um, trans could be a window into wider issues of gender oppression. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about how you came to that sure. sort of realization. Sure. Well, just back to your point about, um, about not being able to read postmodernism, the whole idea behind my, my, my third book, Queer Theory, Gender Theory, was to try to take all these ideas with writers like Foucault and Butler, who are almost impossible to read, and put them into high school English so that anybody uh, who needed them could understand them. And um, um, I guess your listeners who encountered that book will judge for themselves if it was successful or not, but I just kept thinking the ideas aren't that complicated. The language they were couched in, which was hopelessly academic and, and in some cases impenetrable. Um, to your question of, you know, trans is kind of a window into gender oppression. You know, I, I think there's a tendency when we talk about um, queer identities to see them as this separate thing, um, particularly when you're working with more mainstream groups, which I do a lot of the time. Um, actually, where I spend the bulk of my time these days, and I, I keep trying to explain to them, you know, every every organization, every group, every community, every school 
has its own gender culture. They may not think of it as such, but in fact, they do have a culture of how they understand masculinity and femininity and what the boundaries are and how much difference is allowable or even encouraged uh, and so forth. And whenever, you know, trans people, uh, or for that matter, any kind of gender queers are being oppressed, um, don't think of it as something happening to those people. They are inevitably the canary in the mine shaft. Um, when, when gender queers are being taunted or baited or excluded, chances are you also have a very rigid, very harsh gender culture uh, in which uh, women and girls are being uh, sexually harassed uh, and in which other kinds of people are also being mocked and made fun of, um, effeminate boys, uh, butchy girls. Um, so what happens to trans people doesn't happen in isolation. It's almost always a reflection of a wider gender culture in which they are just, uh, if I can switch metaphors, they are just the part of the iceberg uh, above the water that you can see. But as you know, with icebergs, more than uh, three quarters of them are below the surface and you don't see them. But uh, um, I think we're often, you know, we're that thing that says, hey, something bigger is going on here. And that's what I try to educate people to see it as. Yeah, and I think that's just such an excellent point and a good takeaway Um, I kind of want to transition to uh, one of the other events that sort of sparked your radicalism, but the uh, unfortunate murder of Brandon Tina. And I wanted, I don't know if you wanted to speak about that. And when you start out that chapter, you start talking about how, um, you know, trans activism, the trans movement kind of intersects with race and class as well. It was a hard chapter to write because thinking and talking about the murder of a trans person is very difficult, but especially with Brandon Tina. I mean, people probably know uh, Brandon's story to the degree they're familiar with it from the um, award-winning movie Boys Don't Cry. Um, But Boys Don't Cry was cast as a love story um, for artistic reasons. Um, Director Kimberly Pierce decided that that would be, you know, the way she wanted to tell the story. But, you know, Brandon... You know, Brandon tried to live um, as a male and um, moved to Falls City, Nebraska to do so and um, was discovered by two of his male friends. Um, he'd been dating one of their ex-girlfriends and they, they, they beat him and raped him, took turns raping him and then made him shower to wash off any clues and warned him if he went to the local sheriff, um, they would kill him. And Brandon, being the Boy Scout that he was, went right to the local sheriff and reported it. And um, the sheriff um, basically interrogated Brandon uh, as to why he was uh, looking like a guy if he was really a girl and um, tried every which way he could to humiliate him and ask him just disturbingly uh, intimate questions about the sex and, you know, where did they stick it in and just stuff I didn't even want to mention. Um, we finally got access to the interview uh, tape and it's just, it's just horrendous. And, and, and you can see there's a certain point where Brandon keeps trying to say, this isn't relevant. I was raped and I was assaulted. And the sheriff clearly has no interest whatsoever uh, in discussing that. Um, he's transfixed with trying to humiliate her uh, sexually or him sexually and force him to admit that, you know, he's really female. And at a certain point, Brandon, it's really sad, just kind of gives up and just starts answering everything from there on with, I don't know. Uh, and it's just heartbreaking. And um, the sheriff told Brandon he needed to stick around since he was a material witness in his own assault and then made sure to call um, Tom, uh, John Lauder and Tom Nissen in for questioning, which alerted them to the fact that Brandon had filed a complaint and true to their word on Christmas Day Day. Uh, showed up at Brandon's farmhouse and murdered him. Um, hard to talk about even now. So this is not really at its heart a love story. This is about how law enforcement, even when a transgender person has been brutalized and raped, um, not only refused to protect them, but basically made their uh, violent murder almost inevitable. And I think this is the reason that it radicalized me and so many people in the trans community. It wasn't that trans murders hadn't happened before. They happen regularly two or three times a month. We're finding out now. But this was the first one that was just so egregious um, that no one could turn away. And um, we ended up 
Um, we didn't want to do a protest, but we ended up deciding to uh, do a memorial vigil outside the courtroom where the murder trial was um, taking place. And uh, I just put out the word um, with two friends and said, hey, we're going. I mean, Fall City, Nebraska is the middle of nowhere. No offense to your Nebraska readers, but um, really just an intersection on the map. Um, but 40 people independently um, flew in on their own dime and showed up to hold a memorial vigil. And I, I, almost all of them used the same words uh, when I would ask them, why are you coming? And they'd say, I don't know. I just feel like I have to be there. Um, Kate Bornstein was there, a playwright and author, Kate Bornstein, Leslie Feinberg. Uh, came from Stonebush Blues and, and 38 other individuals from across the country. So um, the reason I mentioned that it's an interesting intersection of, of issues like race and class and sex is that um, when I said that two or three transgender people are murdered every month, um, what we found out is over, overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly um, young, uh, low-income, uh, African-American transgender women uh, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them, uh, over 80 or 90 percent. And um, so, you know, Brandon, God love him, was um, gorgeous in either uh, and photogenic in, in either gender uh, and was a, you know, rural white boy living on a farm. Um, he does not, you know, match um, the profile of, of the average, you know, two or three transgender murders that just took place this July, as you and I are talking, um, he's actually you know, the opposite of the profile. And I, I think it's also because he was white and because he was attractive and because he was male, that this is the story that was made into, you know, a, a world changing movie. But he is not the profile out there. And, and often I think that as a movement, um, LGBT politics tends to ignore um, those of us who are the most vulnerable, which right now seems to be um, um, young people who are, you know, black and low income and and uh, and trans women to boot, they are hugely at risk. Yeah. So what happened sort of after the vigil sort of in terms of uh, the tactics you were using in your activism and sort of what happened what was sort of the next target in terms of the, the movement? Well, I had decided that um, uh, along with two other activists, Nancy and Andrew from Boston and Tony Bradonetto, who was also a deputy sheriff uh, uh, in Florida. And you know, the three of us kind of said, okay, from now on, um, we just have got to focus attention on this. We knew that there were other trans murders, um, but no one was paying any attention. And so we kind of made a decision that every time someone was murdered, we would show up. And, um, and this interesting thing happened, you know, someone would be murdered in, you know, East Elbow, Arkansas. And we would say, okay, we're going to come in and do a vigil, the three of us, you know, who the heck are we? But people would show up. Um, as long as they knew someone was coming in, it became an event. And the local community would, uh, the transgender community would show up. And all of a sudden you have these murder vigils taking place all over the country. Uh, and then the gay press, which pretty much was not covering um, transgender at that point, they saw themselves as representing gay and lesbian people. Just, you know, that was news. Um, and they would start covering it. So that got us into at least the gay press and sometimes even the straight press as well. So it was an effective tactic in terms of, uh, creating momentum and awareness and media coverage. Um, but after you do it for a couple of years, it gets really tiring suddenly if I hearing that, you know, someone else obviously worse for the victim than for us. I don't even imply otherwise, but it, it gets exhausting all of a sudden getting a call that someone's just been killed and, you know, in Chicago and realizing that in the next three weeks, you're going to have to get in a plane, whatever your plans were, and go do another vigil. And you also start to realize that not only it's exhausting, but it doesn't seem to to go any place. And I remember saying to a friend of mine, you can't, you can't stop a war from a mash tent. At some point you have to go on the front lines uh, and, and make some kind of more structural change. So um, that's when I started thinking about, you know, doing something that was more structural to start a national transgender political organization. And I remember talking to a friend of mine, actually Reverend Lynn Walker in New York and saying, you know, how do you, how do you do politics? 
you know, how do you do national politics? And she said, you do things at the national level, (laughs) (laughs) which seems prima facie, but at the time was revelatory. Everybody kept doing these local, local events. And from then on, that became our mantra. Anything we did was considered national. And we do a national this, and even in one city, it was national. And, um, and it worked. I mean, people started coming out of the woodwork. I remember giving a speech at a, one of the two major transgender conferences and um, about the need to have a political presence and stop just focusing on, you know, the kind of things we focus on at conferences, which is, you know, access to doctors, what kind of hormones to take, what to do if you're a cross-dresser and your wife wants to leave you and divorce you and take the kids. I mean, how to do self-acceptance. I mean, these are all important things, but they're not really, you know, going to create lasting political change. And I gave this speech and suddenly people were just throwing money at me. It was like a thousand bucks in one evening, which was a lot in those days and thinking, okay, this is like Michigan, this, this, this sucker could scale. So we announced this new national organization and called it gender PAC for reasons that escape me now. We were never a PAC, but it sounded cool. And uh, suddenly we had this, you know, national political organization dedicated to gender rights. So what happens then, you know, when you get to Washington, you know, you, you have this sort of new tactic, this new um, sort of window into how you're going to frame your activism, and then you end up going to the nation's capital. So what happens once you get there? Well, you know, the this black civil rights is kind of the template for everything that comes after. And one of the things they were very effective at was things like lobbying and national marches. And I tried to do a national march and couldn't get that off the ground. But I thought it would be really interesting to try a national uh, lobby day. And at that time, um, a lawyer from um, Houston named Phyllis Fry, who's since the first one of the first transgender judges, Phyllis had been doing her own lobbying on Capitol Hill with her wife and an activist named Jane C. And uh, I asked them if I could accompany them on, my round, on their rounds one time. And I was terrified. I never tried to talk to a, you know, a member of Congress and had no idea what to say. And, you know, street activism, you can feed your anger. But what do you do when someone says, OK, what are your issues and what kind of changes do you want to make and what kind of laws do you want to pass? It was terrifying. And, and after the first couple of visits, I suddenly thought, you know, I I know how to do this. And I started making calls on offices by myself. And we were sitting in the Rayburn building cafeteria. And just like with Michigan, I thought, okay, this could scale too. If we invite people, they will show up to this. This is tremendously empowering. I mean, it's hard to imagine in these days of, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, how incredibly despised and marginalized trans people were back then. I mean, you know, there were no trans people in media and nobody really talked about it. We were considered weirdos and freaks, even within the gay community. Um, this is at a time when, you know, even HRC and, and the ta- I think the task force might have just added transgender. The task force, you know, GLSEN, HRC, you know, almost all the national trans groups had not added uh, transgender. We were not considered part of the community. We were on the outside of everything. And... Um, um, the idea of actually you could actually put on a suit and go call on your Congress member was just enormously empowering for me. And I remember looking at the Capitol Dome as I walked away that spring day and just feeling like I was literally walking a foot off the ground. And I just thought, okay, we got we to get this to other people. And so we declared this lobby day having no idea what would happen. And I think in the end, 105 or 106 people signed up and all showed up. And the night before we had a briefing, and we, we created packets to hand out on our issues, hate crimes, employment discrimination, medical care, and so forth. And we did trainings and then held our breath. And I remember talking with a friend of mine before uh, the night before and thinking, we are all going to die. <laughs> because, I mean, there is just no way this was going to come off. You don't get 100 transgender people in March on, on, on Congress and start running around the halls. I mean, for one thing, um, in, in many states, cross-dressing was still illegal or borderline legal. Um, and um, there were cross-dressers among us who were not even legally female. And you know, since they're wearing high heels and, and dresses, they were going to have to use the women's room. Can't walk into a men's room looking like that. That's creating a disturbance. If you use the women's room, it's even worse. So I thought, we are all going to get arrested by Capitol Hill police. Uh, this is going to be a disaster. And we're thinking, well, you know, if that... <laughs> If we all end up in a jail cell, but you know, getting bail, that's, that's just what's going to happen. We got to go forward with this. 
And apparently the Capitol Hill police have been warned beforehand. I don't know if they followed news releases or who told them that they were expecting us. And like many of the congressional offices, I would say most of them highly amused, highly amused to see transgender constituents walking in wanting to talk about their issues. This is completely unheard of. I mean, you couldn't find five transgender people together outside of a, a, a training conference in this day. So uh, everybody was very tolerant and amused, and it came off without a hitch over two days. And it has since become an institution. It now happens every year, and I think the community is probably on its 20th or 20, 22nd, I guess, this year. Quite amazing. So I, I really thought we were all going to get arrested. I really did. It is truly amazing to sort of read your account of, you know, the first one and how, you know, you're very transparent in ter- in terms of how much you thought this might not work, you know, and sort of how much courage it takes not only for you, but sort of your um, other activists that were with you to sort of go through with that. But I did want to sort yeah, I think of... that's a central point. I just... Can I just, I'm going to interrupt you just real quick. I think it's a really central point, Kyle, if you don't mind. Oh, go for it. I, I think that, you know, there are certain times in your life, it only happens maybe once or twice, maybe three times if you're lucky, where you're doing something that feels new and necessary, but it makes you sick to your stomach. I mean, it'll make you feel physically ill because there's nobody else doing it. You're not sure it's probably, it's probably not going to work. Uh, it just feels totally out there. Uh, there's no precedent. And you're just thinking, I, I, wait a minute, I should rethink this. I, I sh-. But something tells you it needs to be done. Uh, but you know you're going to fail, and you know you're hugely exposed, uh, and, and you just get that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. And I, one of the big learning experiences for me, and I wish I'd known this earlier, is those are precisely the moments in retrospect where you're going to realize that you were doing something that was extremely uh, innovative and important and necessary. And you have to kind of power through that, that sick stomach feeling and, and go ahead and do it. Uh, because that's what doing something really new and worthwhile usually feels like. Um, and I wish I'd known it back then. I'm sure almost every person who came to lobby day or the showed up in, in fall city had exactly the same feeling. So those are the times when you're really being useful and making change because nobody has done it and you're the only one who can. No, I think that's a very important point. Um, but I was, you know, when you were bringing up your answer to a couple of questions ago, you were mentioning sort of, you know, on Capitol Hill, you know, when you have to go to the bathroom and certainly we have the newest issue being the bathroom bills in various states. But one of the points that you make in the book, which I thought was interesting vis-a-vis gender studies, is that it seemed as though once you realized you were either wearing T-shirts that sort of announced yourself as a trans activist or whatnot, once people realized that you were being transparent with being a trans person, that they were sort of less likely to harass you and sort of this this idea that they didn't want to be fooled. And I think that sort of intersects with sort of the um, debates we hear about various bathroom bills today. So I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, back then there was this tremendous emphasis on passing, uh, on, on being accepted as a cisgender, uh, meaning, you know, non-transgender, um, woman or man. And it was all very binary. You were one or the other. There was no middle ground. There was no gender queer back then. And, um, I think because of that, um, a lot of us, you know, got, and I include myself, got kind of pulled into that whole thing about, you know, trying to overdo it so that people would accept you and you could, you could blend in. And, um, it, it's hugely, uh, it's hugely disempowering, um, to, to, you know, feel the need, uh, not only to feel the need to hide yourself, but also to feel that if people know what you are, who and what you are, that this is somehow bad, a bad thing. And, um, and you, you failed at something. And at a certain point, um, we had started the protest group, Transsexual Menace, um, with these black T-shirts with, you know, blood dripping kind of Rocky Horror letters to kind of make fun of the whole idea of this paranoia around trans people. And um, we had actually worn those to the Brandon Tina vigil. 
and at Michigan Women's Music Festival and, um, um, and to the murder vigils for other kids who had been killed. And um, I just, you know, <laughs> um, I remember thinking, you know, I have just got to rid myself of my own internalized transphobia. And one way to do that was to just wear the T-shirt every place. So for three years in, 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 <laughs> in New York, I wore that T-shirt everywhere. I mean, I didn't take it off. I actually had a sweatshirt made up for winter, <laughs> a heavy-duty one. So it's like it was really it was illuminating. Um, I, I wore that. I remember getting out of a car to get uh, gas in Falls City, Nebraska, and realizing, hey, I'm I'm wearing a T-shirt that says I'm a transsexual. About five miles from where Brandon Tino was killed, <laughs> and the police refused to protect him. And once, when I had to go to Houston, Texas. Um, and it was not cool back then. I mean, nobody even knew the word transsexual um, or very few people. So it was, it was, it was, it was a trial by fire. Um, but as you said, the, the teasing and the, the, the mocking, the, the people pointing at me and ridicule, any of that stuff, you know, guys nudging themselves in the subway going, Hey, that's really, that's really a man, all that stuff. Just stop dead completely. It was like someone cut it off with a knife. It was fascinating. And um, I don't think I got teased once in the entire three years. There's no point. The whole point of teasing uh, is that someone uh, is embarrassable about something or feels some sense of shame. If you have no sense of shame about it, there's no point in teasing you about something. You know, it has to have an anchor in your own feelings. And I was making clear sometimes falsely that I was proud of who I was. And it was okay with me. And by the end, it turned out to be true. And I kind of was, and I finally stopped, you know, wearing it everywhere. (laughs) But it was an interesting time. And this kind of goes back to uh, one of the answers you gave to a previous question. But what was sort of the relationship with the trans movement within the gay movement or uh, alongside the gay movement? Well, you know, you'd ask briefly about the bathroom issue and that kind of that's a nice entry point to this discussion, too. I mean, back then, the whole bathroom thing was considered to be our Achilles heel. No one wanted to discuss it. Even the trans community wanted to discuss it. It was you know, considered humiliating to have to make the case about bathrooms. And to the degree that we made our case for inclusion in the, the larger LGB but not T movement, um, sometimes people would point to the whole issue of, you know, bathroom use and locker rooms and stuff and say, well, you know, no one's going to ever accept trans people because blank. I mean, sexual orientation, yes. But um, um, this transgender thing is, I remember Barney Frank, who then was the leading and one of two openly gay members, maybe three at that time in, in Congress, you know, basically yelling at me across his desk and saying people are never going to accept, you know, transsexuals or transgender people in, you know, kids locker rooms. You know, how dare you push this stuff? And, you know, it's going to sink the whole, you know, all these, this bill that we want to pass and so forth. There was a lot of consternation back then. Um, uh, The transgender was an unpalatable um, issue and kind of a loser for the gay movement. And the sexual orientation and gender identity were two completely different things. And um, I think the gay movement then, as now, has succeeded in making itself almost entirely about one's sexual orientation and the right to love and has uh, uh, obliterated any discussion of how gender different and even gender queer many gays and lesbians are. And so it kind of fell to us to make all those arguments about gender. And that was difficult for the gay movement. And it took almost, you know, the full 20 years until recently that almost every major, you know, national and or state organization that does gay rights has finally become trans inclusive. Um, but it's taken almost the full 20 years to win that argument uh, and a lot of a lot of picketing and a lot of shouting and a lot of quiet um, discussions with people who would say, I'm your friend and I, I go to the same meetings and we give to the same things. Why am I not welcome in your movement? It's hard to say to someone who's, you know, been there through the barricades that, oh, you know, your, your issues aren't my issues. Um, and, and bathrooms have, you know, maybe as Barney, maybe Barney was right. That has emerged as, you know, the biggest flashpoint. Um, it, it, it is stupid. There's so many bigger issues. Obviously, hate crimes uh, is much bigger and much more important. But um, if you'll pardon my saying so, maybe offending your audiences, I think cisgender people are just transfixed by the idea of, you know, what what gender and genitals transgender people really have or really are. 
And, you know, bathrooms is, is part of that. And that's become this huge flashpoint. Um, what's interesting to me is, you know, back then, um, we didn't even want to discuss it. Um, our enemies kept bringing it up and Barney was complaining. He wasn't complaining. We were bringing it up. It was the right that was fixed on bathrooms is our weak point. And um, they've harped on it so much that it now has become the basis for this, you know, big national conversation uh, around student bathroom use. And um, I think it's actually changing a lot of people's hearts and minds about um, binary genders. People are realizing that it's not safe for transgender people. And we are discriminating against some simple things like public accommodations. And there are people who don't necessarily fit the male-female binary and aren't going male to female or female to male, but are going male to something else or female to something in the middle. And that we need restroom facilities to reflect this. And so there's a huge discussion going on, I think, not just about bathrooms per se, but, you know, an excluded middle here. I, I just wrote an article for The Advocate, it's online now, about going with my family to uh, Cartagena, Colombia, and having to use the women's room with my daughter on the way back and thinking, oh, God, you know, I got to, like, take off my, my jacket so, no, you know, people can see that I have a chest and I don't get glared at at the women's room and I don't call the police, which would be even worse. And there is a gender neutral bathroom in the Cartagena airport, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I mean, things have really changed. So it's it's interesting to me that, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes change comes out of weird places. You don't expect it, but something as basic as, you know, binary bathrooms, people are having to rethink it, even, in, you know, in little Cartagena, they get it. And I think that's wonderful. And we always thought that, you know, kids were our, our weak point. The right always attacked us. You know, kids are going to be confused and they're really going to be upset by seeing these, you know, transsexual people and transsexual teachers and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, kids have turned out to be the tip of the spear. You can make fun of someone like me as, you know, a middle-aged, middle-class tranny, but it's very, very hard to make fun of a ridicule, you know, a 16-year-old who comes out like Gavin Grin and says, hey, you know, I'm a transgender male and I need to have my gender um, respected and I need the right to use appropriate facilities. Um, very hard to make fun of that kid and not feel tremendous sympathy for their courage uh, and their transparency and their forthrightness. So both, you know, kids and bathrooms have turned out um, in many ways to be winning issues for us. I mean, look, the NBA and the NAACP both pulled out of North Carolina largely over the transgender bathroom bill. I could have never seen that coming in a million years. I mean, the most jock-oriented, testosterone-drenched um, organizations in the country, among them, and uh, they are now backing transgender bathroom use. So, you know, who, you, who knew? Um, as, um, as Martin Luther King once almost said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward men in dresses. <laughs> or, or justice. I, I think he said justice, but both justice <laughs> for men and justice. Yeah. So I was curious, this is kind of going to be one of my few final questions, but where do you think maybe activism generally, but maybe, you know, you want to speak to trans activism in particular, where does it go sort of in the age of Trump? You know, I think I think that's something that a lot of activists in various arenas are, you know, starting to ask themselves, you know, do we have to change tactics or what do we do, you know, in response to this? So I was wondering if you have any sort of idea, if you have if you've thought of that at all. Oh, I have wisdom to offer, Kyle. I have wisdom to offer. That's, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> I don't for. think anybody really <laughs> I don't think anybody really gets the Trump monster. You know, I, I, things, the country seems to go back and forth. Um, neither Democrats nor Republicans right now, I think, are putting out a strong, coherent message of progress. And um, we're seeing the ends of, you know, what can be accomplished in the New Deal metaphor. And the right is also obviously completely intellectually spent. Uh, and, you know, kind of what that gave us was George Bush, who got us in the two completely disastrous and incompetent wars. Uh, and out of that, we got a, a huge swing back. We got our first, our first black president. And, um, that was, you know, uh, not as big a swing as I would have liked to the, toward the left. But now we're seeing a huge swing again in response to the first black president. It seems like, you know, every racist alt-right person in the country came out to vote in this last election. 
uh, and put Trump over. And I have no doubt that there will be a huge swing back because he's running this into the ground. Um, and what's interesting for me is the amount of distance between him and the Republican establishment. And the Republican paradigm is completely shot. Nobody cares about it all except the donor class. Nobody who voted for him and is about to lose their health care cares a damn about um, tax breaks for the rich uh, and reducing government. So um, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a lurch to the left. Um, um, and I, I don't really feel any huge need to respond to anything in the age of Trump. I don't think he's an age. I think he's just a reflection of a tremendous um, and to some degree racist um, reaction to um, Obama. And uh, I think he's, he's a footnote. He's going to be a horrendous, horrific footnote, but a footnote in history. This is the last gasp of the angry white people. And, and I say some of that, you know, both my, my own and my partners and our best friends, parents all voted for Trump. <laughs> so, you know, I get it about, you know, angry white people in, in, you know, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, in Rust Belt states and in the South. But I don't feel any huge need to respond to him. I don't think he's the future of anything. He's the past getting one last gulp. I do think that we're about to see, um, we're about, we are seeing the limits of transgender discourse, uh, and the gender discourse generally as it's currently constituted. The young person who spoke up, uh, and interrogated, uh, President Obama and said, you know, I am non-binary. Um, you know, basically, what do you got for me? <laughs> and, uh, even someone as sophisticated and cosmopolitan and well-read as Obama had no idea how to respond to this person. And I think that mirrors where many of us are. Um, transgender has typically been anchored uh, in an idea of inner discomfort uh, and, and wanting to change from one thing to another. And um, what do you do when you have the rise of a, uh, an entire mini movement, particularly of young people who um, identify as genderqueer or as non-binary and who uh, are not going from or to anything. They are just being themselves and are not necessarily anchored in any kind of discomfort and also do not um, um, link their identities to male, female genders. I, I think that's a tremendously profound question. And I'm not sure that gender studies, trans activism or LGBT and feminist activism have any way to respond to that. Feminism um, almost requires by definition, uh, males and females, particularly the latter, whose um, rights, you know, feminism claims to represent. Um, gay rights assumes, again, that you have, you know, binary males and females who uh, love within the same sexual categories. Even transgender rights, as I said, assumes binary sex categories that are being somehow um, transitioned across or uh, intermixed in some way. Um, but what happens when that whole thing falls down? Uh, when you have people who are non-binary? I think that's a huge question. And I think that's something that um, gender studies and queer studies are going to have to start to uh, to wrestle with. Uh, I had a, um, I'm writing the introduction for my next book, um, which is called um, um, Burn the Binary. Uh, and um, Someone is interviewing me just as the introduction for the book, and, and she said, you know, what do you think about this thing that, you know, postmodernism and deconstruction are spent force? And I said, I don't think they're spent at all. Um, they may be spent within academia. Things can have a short shelf life, but I think the ideas of deconstructing rigid binary gender categories have become um, like the air we breathe. Um, people say that feminism sometimes is over. Well, it's because all the things that feminism stood for become part of, you know, what most people believe. Um, I think that's happened um, with gender and queer studies. Many of the ideas that the academy put forth as radical deconstruction of, of gender ideas and gender uh, gendered sexes 20 years ago have simply been accepted. And now young people are going past that and saying, I'm off the binary. Um, we're going to have to think about what that means uh, in all these different areas uh, in terms of gay, straight, male, female, transgender, cisgender. It overturns almost everything. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, a hugely important um, stimulus for, you know, rethinking uh, gender from the ground up and what gender systems are and ought to do uh, as a social force. So I'm kind of looking forward to, you know, the next 10 years and seeing where this goes.
So um, it's not about responding to Trump. It's about responding to uh, a 17-year-old in Michigan who probably just came out yesterday. Their parents is non-binary. That's a whole different future, Kyle, that we haven't seen yet. I can't wait to get there. I wholeheartedly agree, and I, I think that's a excellent response to that question. And I think to round out our discussion, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but if anyone, you know, that listened to this interview is sort of more curious um, about this topic, uh, what are, you know, maybe two or three books that you would maybe recommend that they also check out in addition to your forthcoming book? Oh, I don't think there are any other good books on this, Kyle. Um, you know, anything by, um, you know, Leslie Feinberg or, you know, Kate Bornstein, um, um, Julia Serrano, who wrote Whipping Girl. I mean, there's a whole bunch of good books out there. Um, Jameson Green wrote a great book about being a trans man. Um, there's a whole bunch of books now for people who are, uh, 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 intersex. Another topic we haven't even touched on today. Um, I, I, I have to tell you when, um, 20, well, God, in, in 1978, when I started my transition, I set aside a portion of my bookshelves, um, for, for queer books, for, you know, popular books that had a, a gay theme. Um, and at the time it was, it was two books, Kyle. It was, um, The Front Runner and it was, um, Ruby Fruit Jungle. <laughs> And, uh, and then a third book came out called Out of the Closets. It was an anthology. And that was it. Those three books were my little, you know, gay part of my bookshelf. And um, now their entire bookstore is devoted to, you know, gay studies, queer studies, gender studies, and, and trans stuff. So um, there's a lot of really rich stuff out there for people to choose from. And it's, it's really amazing seeing the growth. Um, and and I, I should say also, when I first wrote Read My Lips, there were only two real transgender books out there. There was Leslie and there was Kate. And I decided they'd both written nice tranny books. I wanted to write the angry tranny books. So when Read My Lips, I was very angry and very edgy. Um, but that was, that, it was like, that was my little transgender book section. There was Kate and there was Leslie and there was it. So it's, it's amazing the choices people have. Um, for people who want to like kind of participate in a wider dialogue and hear for some really interesting voices. There's a website called We Happy Trans, um, which has some wonderful um, young voices, including the um, son of um, Annette Benning and, um, oh God, who's her husband? It just went in my head. Um, Warren Beatty posted one of the most watched videos on that website. And he talks about how happy he is to be a trans male and queer and whatever identified. And they're just wonderful videos watching these kids talk. Like I said, it's, it's a future I'm really looking forward to, I think. Good things are going to come in terms of gender that we haven't even thought of yet. Well, I, I implore our audiences to check out your book. And I want to thank you again for joining the podcast today. No, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it, Kyle. <laughs>